there is also an opportunity here to rethink what a beautiful golf course looks like. Can it be something that has weeds and spots and things like that? Because that's what it looks like. All right, so good morning, afternoon, or evening from wherever you are tuning in to today's podcast from. I'm Mitch McSweeney, and along with Jess Nachman and Julia Ferreira-Gomez, who are co-interviewing today, we'd like to welcome you to the Sports, Social Justice, and Development Podcast, a podcast that aims to critically explore the utility of sport and other forms of physical activity, recreation, and leisure used around the world for developmental pursuits. To do this, we engage in exploratory and in-depth conversations with practitioners, researchers, organizational staff, and participants involved with sports, social justice, and development programs. And today, we're really excited for episode five to be talking with Brian Wilson, who is a professor in the School of Kinesiology and director of the Center for Sport and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia, and Brad Millington, who is an associate professor in the Department of Sport Management at Brock University. And his research examines sport and related practices such as health promotion, fitness, and physical activity from a social scientific perspective. And Dr. Wilson uh, had his research interests and projects lie in areas related to consumer culture, media, youth, the environment, social inequality, peace, social movements, qualitative methods, and sport and leisure studies generally. So in this episode, we'll be talking uh, with Brian and Brad about their book titled The Greening of Golf, Sport, Globalization, and Environment. And before we launch into the book, uh, we want to give Brian and Brad an opportunity to discuss their current work. So I'm going to hand it over to Julia and welcome again, Brian and Brad. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks again, Brad and Brian. It's so great to meet you both. Uh, We were wondering, could you tell us what you currently both research? And even though uh, Mitch did give us a bit of an overview, any projects that you're currently working on to give listeners a bit more of some background about your own work? You want to go, Brad? No, you go ahead. Thanks. Okay, Julia, thanks for the question. Um, I'm working on a few things right now. I'll narrow it down to, I guess, two or three. So the one, which is with Brad, uh, is really a continuation of the project that we'll be talking about today. So the, without giving too much away as to what's to come, the book, The Greening of Golf, which we'll be chatting a bit about, in a way that was about sort of a history of the golf industry's responses to environmental concerns. Um, near the end of the book, as I know, we'll, sounds like we'll talk a little bit about, we began to talk a little bit about what golf's future could look like. And we also began talking a little bit about what we might think of as best practices as it relates to doing more sustainable golf. And this next grant is really about that. So um, it's a short grant. Brad and I, uh, we actually have just met recently to begin, you know, more planning on it. It's been a little slower than we'd like for obvious reasons over the past year, but it's really very much about the future of golf, what golf could be, and I guess visions of what sustainable golf might look like, could look like. Um, So that's sort of the, you know, a major focus right now. Another thing that I've been working on, which is different, but not completely unrelated, is around, there's a stream of work that I do related to sports journalism. And I have a particular interest in what we might think of as like best practice for journalism. Um, And so I've been working on some projects with some uh, graduate students here at UBC and some some others 
and then thinking about what we might think of as things like sport journalism for peace. What does peace promoting journalism look like as it relates to sport? And the same thing for the environment. We're doing some work right now too that is sort of looking at the ways that of, of what media coverage of the environment might ideally look like uh, through sport. And there's a final one here. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's around bicycles and development related work. Uh, so I'm doing a little bit of work uh, related to that. I know my understanding is some of the other podcasts in this series will focus on that, but um, I'm ex really excited uh, that I have been involved and will continue to be involved in, in some of the work around the roles that bikes can play, have played, and could play around uh, around development and peace. So this is Brett, um, and I wanted to let Brian do the heavy lifting because there is quite a bit of overlap in the things that we do. So. I guess, you know, broadly, uh, my research, I'm, I'm interested in sport and some related concepts like health and physical activity and exercise. When I get more specific, it kind of goes into two strands. So one area is sport and the environment. So that's this work on, on golf and the environment, especially that we'll be talking about today. You could put some of the work that, that Brian talked about with, um, say, Bicycles for Development, I think, into that category as well. The other strand of my research uh, focuses on sport media and technology. And so there, that's that's gone in a few different directions over time, but it's things like, um, you know, wearable health and fitness technologies, uh, exercise theme, video games. Um, more recently, I've been moving into kind of looking at sport analytics as a focus. So sort of adopting, a, I guess you could say, a, so, a sociological view and thinking about the significance of these things. Really interesting to hear that you're diving into more virtual aspects, especially with uh, right now, like the current global situation with COVID-19 and definitely impending on everyone's data collection and research. But it really sounds like you both have a lot on the go. So that's amazing. I find that like both when you uh, echo your work, you really highlight the importance of environmentalism in your sociological study of sport. And why is it so important that you relate environmental the environment to sport? Yeah, good question. So I can go first on this one. I mean, I think for us, it really comes down to that reciprocal relationship between sport and the environment. This is the way you often see it talked about as a reciprocal relationship. And, and by that, I mean, it's sort of like a back and forth relationship between sport and the environment. Sport impacts on the environment, but also the environment impacts on sport as well right so both are important i think if we think about the latter so the impacts of the environment on sport this is something that's a concern now and i think will increasingly become a concern with climate change right so here we're talking about things like um uh extreme weather events uh impacting on the ability to host a sporting event for example or rising temperatures just making it too hot to, to have an event or something like that I might remember there was uh, with, with the, the Tokyo Olympics, actually not sure where things stand right now, but there was a plan to move the marathon events much further north um, to try to mitigate the, the, the heat in Tokyo itself, right? So, so things of that nature. Um, there was, uh, I guess, air quality would be another case in point. You might have seen those images of the, the orange skies over San Francisco's baseball stadium last summer. So that was the summer of 2020, right? So there's a concern there about air quality impacting our on our ability to, to partake in sport. And certainly these are concerns for sort of like formal, organized, elite sport. 
but there are also concerns for just you know individuals and, and groups and communities who want to partake in sport and exercise and, and recreation on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's one half of it, the, the ways that the environment is impacting on sport and, and will continue to do so. Um, the other side is how sport impacts on the environment, and that's a concern here as well. I think it's fair to say that, you know, sport is not the biggest concern in terms of environmental impacts. Like if we're sort of making a list of industries, it probably wouldn't be at the very top. But there's still reason to think about the relationship between sport and the environment, a number of reasons. I mean, one is that sport does still typically have environmental impacts and sometimes significant ones when it comes to things like air travel on a part of fans and teams, for instance. Um, uh, and so, so that's that's certainly one consideration. Uh, and then the other one is that, and so, and so, I suppose I should say the idea there is that you know, if there's this notion that everyone should play their part with respect to the environment, that sport indeed has a part to play. The other element is that we often talk about the power of sport to sort of inspire positive social change in various ways. So that sort of raises the question of whether and how sport can kind of help to inspire positive changes around the environment. So ultimately, it's that reciprocal relationship that I think is kind of at the core of this work that, that we're trying to do and that many others are doing around sport and the environment. Right. It sounds like you're really highlighting those interrelated concepts. And um, I definitely feel that uh, taking looking at the environment from a sociological perspective in sport, you're taking on that corporate social responsibility that I find um, a lot of different corporations and industries are also doing right now, just because of everything going on in the world. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Brad. I have a tiny bit I could add to that, actually, even though Brad was super comprehensive, which might offset something we talk about later on, is um, I was thinking about, Julia, when you just said the word sociology, too, because the idea that we're not only studying the relationship between sport and the environment, but we're also studying it in many cases with a sociological lens in mind. And maybe in terms of a theme that has run, I guess I can speak for you, Brad, on this, we work together on most things around it that has run throughout our work has been that has been from a sociological perspective, because there's a lot of work out there that is on sport and the environment. It's not all with through a sociolo sociological and critical sociological lens. And so for us, this actually is the idea, which I know I thought of this because I'm thinking of the name of your podcast, but to the extent that environmental issues are justice issues mm -hmm. in a lot of ways too. And they deal with equity and inequity. And the idea that things like climate change are felt unequally across regions, uh, they're felt unequally by people who have different access to resources, impact humans and non-humans, differently, or at least obviously have different levels of control over what's happening with that, and also across generations too. So um, I think it, for me, the sociology of sport as it relates to the environment is pretty key here too. And also, and Brad certainly alluded to it around like social change possibilities, but I think one of the things that sociology does pretty well is it can help us think about how change has taken place, could take place, and how it's prevented from taking place too, like how the status quo is maintained and certainly and i know we'll get into this when we talk a bit about the the book but to the extent that sociology can help us i think think a little bit more deeply about how decisions are made around things like environmental policy or how sport is carried out 
um, and what sort of incentive systems are in place. So why it is that some things we might think like, how could you do that? That they actually make sense according to an incentive system. That those are things that, that sociology can help us understand too. So um, anyway, just a bit to add on to that to maybe foreground the sociological part of this, which I think is really a theme in the in the book as well. Absolutely, I'm so glad that you shared actually about the status quo um, and. Uh, talking about why are we maintaining the status quo and how can we disrupt this through the research we're doing in this area? I think that's really interesting. So thank you again for sharing that, Brian. Yeah, that was great. And I think um, you both kind of brought it all together to start to lead into questions about the the actual book. So, well, as Brian knows, I've been trying to golf a bit more, even though um, you know we've been in lockdown for a while, but Brad and Julie and Jess, if you didn't know, I've been trying to golf more. So I'm really interested to talk with you about the book. Um, and what inspired you both? I know you probably just covered the motivations to study environmentalism and, uh, you know, within sociology of sport, but what inspired you specifically to write this book on the greening of golf? Well, there's a couple of ways into this one. I'll, I'll start with just a short one and then maybe I'll personalize it just a little bit because this does go back. There's a little bit of history on this one, um, but just in broad terms, and we'll get to this, but the idea that if one is interested in sport environmental issues and one looks at golf, a sport that, that in terms of the literal landscape that's needed in order to play golf is requires these massive uh, swaths of land that only some people have access to um, and has over time been charged with potentially having negative environmental impacts. It just seems to make sense if one's interested in environmental issues and what I just said, if one buys what I just said, that you might look at golf. So like that's probably the baseline on this, that at the very least, it might inspire curiosity. And for Brad and I, it certainly did. And that led to the book. Um, for me, in terms of, I guess, and Brad and I may have our own, like, have our own stories on this. When I first came to this, because I didn't begin my career studying environmental issues, I was studying more like social movements and technology and, and young people. Um, and it sort of came to a moment, probably around 2007, 2008, which probably coincided. I don't know if it was because of this, but that was around when An Inconvenient Truth came out, Al Gore's film. And it was a, a moment where at least the area that I was working in, I thought there's a lot of people doing good work in here. Is there a place where I might be able to make a, a, a different and novel contribution? And in the sociology sport at that time, and things have certainly changed since then, there really wasn't that much written about sport and environmental issues. And so I thought, huh, maybe this would be an area. And I also felt passionate about it. I was also a golfer. Um, and around the same time, I came across what, for me anyway, was a very influential book that inspired a shirt grant that ultimately was the basis for the book. And the book was called From Heresy to Dogma, An Institutional History of Corporate Environmentalism by a guy named Andrew Hoffman at the Stanford University Press. The book has nothing to do with sport, but it was a history of how the chemical industry and petroleum industries, the circumstances that led those industries from basically the early 60s where they denied any impact on the environment, which is the heresy to even bring it up in the title, to a moment later on where basically they were sort of owning and claiming leadership on environmental issues. So it was a sort of a history of that change and how the industry both changed its practices because it did, but also changed how it portrayed itself on it and the extent to which it decided to acknowledge and not only acknowledge, but like own these issues and how that was a very strategic decision. 
um, that really was the basis for the grant that led to the book, like the greening of golf. If you actually look at the, and you know, you've looked at the book, I, I know that in a way it's a history over a very similar period of time, only looking actually at golf, which is not unrelated, of course, to the chemical industry and all the same factors that led uh, those industries to change. Those were not irrelevant to what we came to as well. So for me, it was one of those things. I mean, for those who do research every now and again, you come across a book that makes a difference. And that's one that um, I point to, at least for me, that was really influential that led to the grant. And then uh, anyway, I had the great fortune being able to work with, with Brad on this too. And it's been a, a great partnership that led to the, led to the book. My personal history around this was this started back, I guess, as Brian said, around 2007, 2008. That was when I was at UBC doing my PhD with Brian. And so Brian got this grant and said, hey, do you want to work on this grant? And I said, that sounds great. So that's kind of how I got into this specifically. And then, you know, since then, we've continued to, to work on this um, over the years. Um, but of course, I had I had an interest in the kind of sociological study of sport and related fields like sport management then too, and um, and also you know sport and the environment. Though so there was a need to sort of be brought up to speed pretty quickly on some of the literature in that area, um, and yeah, I mean I re I still remember going into the library. It was one of the first days I was in there looking through some trade publications that we had at UBC. And I still remember opening it up, uh, you know, one of the texts and, and seeing this article from the 1960s about the environmental movement, probably something I'll talk about a little bit later, but realizing as I read this, that actually there's a lot of rich data here when it comes to the relationship between golf and the environment over time, that this isn't just a contemporary issue, but there's actually like a whole historical thing going on. Maybe that's, that's obvious, right? When you really think about it. But it was that moment when I thought, boy, there's a, there's a lot to say um, in relation to this topic. And we're going to have to do a lot of work to really think through this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, like you said, Brian, like it's just golf is one of the sports where like there's just acres and acres of land, which is it, which is like played on. And, you know, you kind of talk about that in the book, but there's really a physicality or material nature to it that relates to the environments. I feel like some of the literatures uh, of sporting the environment and corporate social sociology, I think we'll be covering that. So I'm going to move to the book part one, um, if that's okay with you both. If you could briefly, what was going on in the golf industry that led to this book and this analysis? Yeah, I can go first on this one. Um, and, and it follows nicely from some of the things that Brian was just saying. So I guess... If you think right now, right, like at the contemporary moment, there's this idea that people working within the golf industry are environmental leaders or environmental stewards, right? The caretakers for the environment. And this is sometimes stated explicitly, right? So, you know, there are people who will say like, we are essentially, we are environmental leaders. Sometimes we think it's, it's implied in things like environmental awards, that are given out um, by organizations like say the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, the GCSAA. Um, and that's interesting in itself when you think about some of the things that Brian was just talking about, how golf occupies you know, the, these, these large plots of land and so on and so forth. So it's worth studying in its own right. Where it gets really interesting, I think, is when you put it into that historical context. Um, 
And we did that in the research by looking at historical documents going back about a century, early 1900s, um, and looking especially at industry trade publications, right? So documents put out by the industry where they sort of talk about what's going on in the golf industry. Like I said, that's where this current idea that the golf industry, people working within the golf industry, environmental leaders gets really interesting because what you find when you look historically is that that wasn't always the case, or at least it wasn't always promoted, right? So an example here, we looked at some documents, especially in the, the kind of post-war years, 1960s and 1970s, especially. And what we find in looking at that time period is that there's more of an antagonistic relationship, we would argue, between the golf industry and the environmental movement. Of course, those are both like broad things in their own right. You will get divergent views in the golf industry and in the environmental movement. But we think it's fair to say that there's this kind of antagonistic relationship going on, right? There are some key texts that point to this. So that article that I mentioned before, the one where I was in the library and thought, well, there's actually something going on here. That was an article from the early 1960s, and it was a key figure in the environmental, uh, sorry, in the golf industry, responding to Silent Spring, which was a book written by Rachel Carson, who is kind of a famed environmentalist. That text, Silent Spring, is now thought to be a key text in, in, the, in the history of the environmental movement. So this article in this golf industry publication was responding to Silent Spring and really kind of like pushing back against Rachel Carson, right? And, and that's why we say there's this antagonistic relationship. There's other evidence to this effect as well, that there's this kind of frosty relationship between the golf industry and the environmental movement. And there's this, this idea that the golf industry is kind of under attack in a way. So for example, Rachel Carson in that book, Silent Spring, it, it really is a critique of the use of chemicals like DDT, for example, right, in, in, in maintaining turf. And DDT was being used on golf courses at this moment in time in order to keep a kind of like green, you know, idealized aesthetic on the golf course. So when we look back historically, we see that this this idea that, that the golf industry, people working within the golf industry are environmental leaders, right, are, are effectively part of the environmental movement. That's not something that's always there when we look back historically, and there's this more antagonistic relationship. And so what we were trying to do in the book was thinking about, was, was think about how that change over time has taken place. And that's where the book that Brian mentioned, From Heresy to Dogma, comes into play, right? So it's a story in golf, we think, that is not unlike the story that has played out in other industries where the environment in the past is it's heresy and now it's dogma, right? So what we see in golf and what we try to transition in the book is this movement towards uh, embracing the environment and environmentalism, right? That that idea of being at odds with the environmental movement is something that is unsustainable. And that's a terrible pun. I'm sorry for that, but it's unsustainable. And so over time, the industry kind of changes, adapts, and starts to change various things, change some of their practices in terms of things like course management, also change their messaging as well to say the public, to governments and so on. 
so that they can position themselves, so that they can sort of have the basis for claiming that we are now environmental leaders. So that's sort of a backgrounder on what's going on in the industry over time. It does lead to the question about, uh, or, or to various kind of critical questions you can ask, like, is this moment we're in now, is the industry, is the golf industry going far enough in terms of the environment? Is there more there could, they could be doing and so on and so forth? But that's sort of like the, the, a brief view of the, the picture over time that we were trying to describe and also explain in the book. This is just my take. If I had to do like, a, like a, an elevator description of this, I'd probably say of things that were going on is that one, that periodically the golf industry was being called out for the kinds of things that Brad was talking about. There is in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a sociologist of sport named Brian Stoddard, who actually wrote about developments up in Whistler, BC, with these kinds of questions in mind. So this, what, what Brad and I did, did build on the work of, of some others. So that, hap that happened, the golf industry being called out, the golf industry was taking leadership on these same issues or claiming to take leadership with the, the tension being the extent to which claiming to take leadership means you're actually improving your practices. And certainly Brad and I found that practices were improved at the same time as we had some questions around the extent to which the messaging always matched up with what was taking place. And then the final piece being in terms of what was going on on a more, at least what from, I think our perspective was a more optimistic level is we were seeing glimmers of things like uh, organic golf or like these more sustainable forms of golf, these almost experimental modes of uh, trying to sort of change towards something where there might be like fewer or no chemicals and things like that too. So if I were to think of like three big things, the idea that the industry was being called out, that uh, the industry was beginning to take leadership and did take leadership or claim it, and that there also were some sort of, I don't, we might call them, I'll call them alternatives. You might call them resistance, depending on how you frame it, but that were taking place as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for that, too. And I, you know, I feel like so much was happening at that time, like you both kind of outlined that the book contributes really a nice perspective on especially going all the way back uh, with some of those documents, and then bringing it to um, kind of present day around that time. So in terms of, you know, you mentioned documents, but I know you also had interviews and such. So just briefly, you know, what kind of data, you know, information and sources were used for the book's content kind of in terms of methods and, and data collection? Yeah, the industry documents were, were important and we looked at as, you know, as, as much as we could in that regard. Um, and, and media as well, we did, you know, some we looked at the way sort of um, these issues are reported on in media. We did interviews with some golf superintendents with a focus, especially on golf courses that um, are, are kind of well regarded for their environmental practices. We did some site visits to golf courses as well. A couple of visits to um, uh, organic golf courses, as Brian mentioned, and that included interviews with people working there. One of the other places we went was the site where uh, Donald Trump's golf course was being built near Aberdeen, Scotland. So I guess this was back 
in 2012 while the course was being built. The course is now built. It's Trump International Golf Link Scotland. So we went to the site or kind of around the site, I guess, not actually on the site, but we were meeting with some people who were protesting against the development of that course. That was kind of a high profile case of what you might call a resistance movement uh, mm-hmm. emerging in opposition to a golf course development project. Also, the particular the chapter in the book, there's a publication around this too, that were specifically policy documents related to a decision that was made in Ontario around um, the Cosmetic Pesticides Ban Act of 2009. That was something that um, was a particular focus too for one of the one of the case studies as well. But it, other than that, um, like Brad did a great job with an overview. The only thing maybe I'll highlight is for all of the data collection, um, I mean, I, 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 fa- I found the industry documents to reveal some things that were uniquely unique, if that's a word. <laughs> like uh, they, not only did, were there interesting things that came out of that were unique, but also because of the nature of um, like basically Brad and then he sent me in at UBC a little later uh, around like finding these documents, but really like going into the library finding these hard copies that you couldn't find anywhere you're finding data that you just might not find otherwise uh because this was industry members talking to one another too which was uh was really interesting so my understanding is that you learned about sort of the different approaches to environmentalism that certain courses would take or um within the industry and in chapter two you go over these different approaches to environmental decision-making and the assumptions within environmental concerns for golf. Um, So how did these environmental approaches differ from each other or did they also show similarities? So in the book, we have this table that basically outlines the range of responses. And I'll say briefly what those are, and then I'll probably focus on the, on two of them that are probably the ones that really are the ones that you see most often. But we sort of described what we called on, I guess, one end of the spectrum pro golf, which was really, if you were to look at a golf response to environmental issues, that was a no response. That was a, that would be like a denial response, a not change in practices response, which you just don't see now, but that would probably describe a point in time when there was a more of a denial around the potential impacts of like particular kinds of chemical use and things like that. Moving more to the middle of the spectrum is what we called alter golf. Um, And that actually two things that are similar and different sit beside each other, Jess. So this kind of comes to the question. So we had a, what we called it like a reformist side of alter golf, which would probably speak to what much of the industry does. So this would be golf courses that do use uh, pesticides, but they will use them in ways that they would sort of argue is responsible. Um, They would use, for example, in terms of chemical applications, something called integrated pest management, which is sort of a technique that is not just golf oriented, it's around all turf grass management, that sort of emphasizes using chemicals only as a last resort, um, using it in very targeted ways. So the idea, of this responsible golf movement is that industry can do this and they can do it responsibly and they can take leadership and maybe don't need to be regulated around that. And that's part of the reason for sort of showing leadership around that. So that would be the reformist side. And all an other alter golf piece for the idea that golf still we should have it, 
um, which is foreshadowing the next one here, would be things like the organic golf response. The idea that golf can stay, but it does need to change. And this would be a more radical set of changes, at least for the organic golf um, folks that Brad and I spoke with. The idea was that there'd be no synthetic pesticide applications on courses. Uh, as we might come to a little bit later on in our conversation, there were other sort of sustainability oriented changes on those courses. So, so Jess, in terms of like the similarities around that, these are both about the idea that golf can and ideally should and be maintained, but that there would be different ways of, of sort of dealing with some of the environmental concerns that are both acknowledged by Ultra Golf, those working in this area. The anti-golf is on the other extreme against like the pro-golf on the other side and uh, I know perhaps later on we'll talk a little bit more about social movements and resistance and those kinds of things but there is and for a long time has been this sort of a nefarious movement that has come under an umbrella called anti-golf which means a whole bunch of different things um, like local movements uh, to sort of prevent particular golf courses as well as sort of a what's been called like a global anti-golf movement too which um, I won't get into right here. Uh, if I were to do a very brief summary, I don't think this is irrelevant to, to the differences. So I described some of them specifically. If I were to summarize, I'd say the main differences between the different sides on these issues has to do first with like a differences in, in the faith one has in technology and innovation to actually address environmental problems. With those who actually think, you know, we can keep using particular pesticides, they've been tested and as we move forward. So it's a faith in the idea that we can actually figure this out, that we know what it means to be responsible golf. And that and that would be different than those who'd say, you know what, we don't really know. Um, we only know what we know, but we don't know what we might know in 10 years. And so a more precautionary approach might be relevant to that. So that's differences in the faith of, of humans to actually know what they're doing with this stuff. Uh, also related to that is a faith in market mechanisms to address environmental problems. So on the one side would be the idea that we don't need perhaps as much regulation on what golf, the golf industry is doing because those working in the golf industry will respond to consumers who you would presume would want uh, golf courses that are the, you know, sort of the safest and most environmentally friendly possible where those who actually have a little less faith in the market there might think there should be more regulation from government and and those kinds of things and related to all of this is is a difference in views on risk so i mentioned earlier a precautionary approach so if one actually thought you know well we know what we know now according to the latest science about the potential impacts of the pesticides used on courses so let's just go with that it says these are probably safe so we can do that um, a precautionary approach would say, but we don't know what we don't know yet. So maybe we should take a more conservative approach to what we do. So this kind of a, a juxtaposition between what I think of as a cost benefit approach, like, oh, it's probably okay if we wait all out being equal with what we know versus one, it's like, let's play a little bit more conservative. And those, I guess, just would be the differences is different views on those strands within this. I, if I could just jump in and say, Brian is leaving out the best part of all of this, which is <laughs> as usual. the continuum is called the pro alter anti golf response continuum, the uh -huh. P A A R the par continuum, <laughs> which is a golf related pun, which I don't remember, but I'm sure we were very happy 
with ourselves when we uh, when we when we are when we arrived at that. That's the best part of the book, I think. You made another pun earlier, so I hope there's there's <laughs> you put in some more Easter eggs. Yeah. I'll stop there. <laughs> I, if I could just jump in on one more thing on on what Brian said, of a slightly more serious thing, I suppose. Is I think Brian framed, actually framed it really nicely and the other the other kind of framing for thinking about this stuff is that idea of light greening versus dark greening and that was something that that was really helpful for us in conceptualizing our own analysis the book is called the greening of golf sort of two parts to the book one is the light greening of golf and one is the 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 dark greening of golf and that idea of light greening that goes back to the story that, that that we sort of told earlier this point earlier on in say you know the 1960s ish era where environmentalism is you know arguably heresy in the industry or at the very least there's that kind of antagonistic relationship that i talked about before from what we can tell to the point now where it seems to be dogma in the industry but it's a kind of particular version of environmentalism, we would argue, that's adopted as Brian laid out. And it's, you know, things like faith in technology, you know, more precise application of pesticides and these sorts of things. That's the light greening of golf, as we call it. The dark greening gets back to this question of whether we actually need to push further and whether that more kind of transformist response is 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 something that we should pursue and that's where we talk in the book about things like organic golf for example as brian mentioned so i know that for us that framing of kind of the greening of golf but then the light greening of golf and the dark greening of golf this idea that there's actually different versions of greening is significant and also if we go back i suppose to that idea of a, taking a sociological approach that's where we can start to think about you know motivations seeming motivations power dynamics and, and these sorts of things too it's interesting how you talk about the light greening and the dark greening and how the light green, greening almost seems like an, a maybe an easier solution to the problem that's not really getting at the root of the issue. Um, and I guess that's what would apply to like federal mandates if we were to say, um, you know, you're only allowed to um, kind of putting responsibility on the consumers to do more. And do you find that you get this put pushback of... Um, maybe attaining the dark greening of golf because of like capitalism or capitalistic forces you find you're getting pushed back because of i feel like what you guys are aiming for is such transfer like really transformational research that it might be difficult to like get heard because of that maybe a, just a couple of thoughts so that's really um i think astute observation julia uh maybe one thing i'll say and we do really try and emphasize this in the book is while there's certainly a distinction between the light greening, like more of a sustainability, which which we'll probably talk about a more sustainability oriented one, like let's do this gradually, let's balance economic, social and environmental pieces on this. Let's actually use the latest technologies to do things. I should say that even though, I mean, if you read through, you know where we kind of land mm -hmm. on this, that we, we argue that the golf industry has made immense strides in actually improving their practices around this using what would be termed light green approaches that that these technologies have made a difference that in fact you know the use of like an integrated pest management approach has made a change so it's not like these things aren't working 
it's just at least our analysis revealed i think some cracks and contradictions around that in our view and that given what some would say the pressing issues at hand that there might be not only room but like a, a need for something um darker than that uh but again that is a debate and what you've observed which is is the pushback um well certainly i mean with brad and i, I mean there's this this book came out and some articles have come out and and you know so there's that piece but certainly if you look at the golf industry um making arguments for doing the like taking the leadership that they're taking and not necessarily being regulated in the way that they could be regulated i think that tension right there that would be the observation around that is there could be perhaps um the practices could be a little bit different and that they could be required to do some things that um, they are not required to do. I suppose if I could just add one other thing too, it's that we do try, we, we try throughout the book to keep our critical perspective. So that includes when we're looking at some of these darker green, you know, visions of golf as well, right? And adopting a critical perspective of organic golf, for example, right? And thinking of some of the criticisms that people have have levied there or some of the ways that it's, you know, maybe not um, as viable, people would argue. Um, or there's a view, this is a, you know, on the, on the very far end of the spectrum that, that golf actually just shouldn't be, it shouldn't exist because of, well, some reasons like its environmental impacts, its exclusionary practices and that sort of thing. That's something we talk about in the book, especially in the kind of social movements chapter. But it's not uh, a conclusion that we arrive at, which is to say it's a viewpoint that we think critically about as well. And it's not something that we argue for by the end of the book. So we do try to keep, I suppose, our critical sensibilities all the way through and thinking about this from different perspectives. And, and even if I could just jump and move one more step with that, too, is that we also try and acknowledge not only the way the golf industry has improved over time, but the ways that a more main, like simply having a golf course, in some cases, there would be evidence that it actually can have positive impacts to the extent that if it's on like a landfill, a former landfill site or something like that, there's evidence that having a golf course there might be not a bad thing to have, depending on how it's maintained in terms of recovery. There are arguments made around sort of the extent to which golf courses can act as certain kinds of sanctuaries and things like that for particular species and things like that. So there are, again, sort of, and this relates a little bit to the next grant that we're working on is trying to figure out a little bit about where all of these things might sit together down the line too, so. Right, well, I'm really glad you both um, provided some clarification on the light greening versus dark greening. And I also feel that it must've been very difficult for you to kind of keep your critical opinions um, on the wayside when writing this book. Moving on to part two of the book, and I know you actually both previously did describe uh, the history of golf a little bit. I was wondering if there was anything you wanted to add about the history of golf or um, the importance of examining the environmentalism of golf. I know we touched on that, um, but if there's anything else you wanted to add. Yeah, I could jump in on that one. And I will try to be brief, partly because golf has a very long history uh, and partly because as you have gleaned, Brian and I like talking about this stuff. And so there's always a risk we're going to go on at great length. But, you know, I guess I would say here is that this idea that a golf course is maintained in this particular way, right? Like this kind of idealized aesthetic on the golf course that you might see when you watch 
you know, a tournament on TV, that that's a particular thing, historically speaking, right? There's this long period of time where golf is much less impactful on the environment, which is to say a golf course it's like, you know, a meadow, it's it's something on the kind of coastline of the UK, for example. There's this line from John Bale, um, I actually think he's quoting someone named Bernard Darwin in his book, John Bale, the Sport Geographer, where he talks about inland golf courses in the UK, I think it is, being glorified meadows of extreme muddiness. I think that's in the 19th century. I, that, that's a line that's always talking to be glorified meadows of extreme muddiness. Glorified meadows, right, is the key part. Now, one of the things I suppose we should have said is that our focus in the research has mainly been the U.S. and Canadian contexts. And, and so when we're talking about golf, you know, that's largely our focus, not exclusively, but largely. And what we look at is how when golf comes to America, that we can judge from documents that there's this idea that, that, that people working in the industry want to, quote, modernize the game which means they want to do things like render playing conditions more predictable. Not that every golf course will be the same, but that you shouldn't have, you know, something like a, a weed, you know, knocking your ball off course or something along those lines, right? That there should be standards in play and, and these sorts of things. So there's that idea, this, this idea that we can modernize the game in order to make it better. That collides over time with advances in technology. So in the early 1900s, we certainly see evidence of people experimenting with chemicals in order to treat a golf course, but they're just constrained in terms of the technologies they have at their disposal. That goes for the chemicals themselves, I suppose. It also goes for their means for applying those chemicals, right? So there's talk of things like, like basically like spot treatment on a golf course. As time progresses, and especially once you get into those like kind of early post-war years, the technology allows, a, you know, a completely different ways of well, building a golf course in the first instance, right? Like moving land in order to build a golf course, that becomes easier to do as, as time passes. And then treating a golf course once it's built, right? So, you know, I suppose arguably the culmination of this is DDT, right? The, the, the chemical um that is very very potent and as i said before is used on golf courses um at least some golf courses anyways right in 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 the post-war years um and and, and this this incredibly potent chemical um and we not only do we see evidence you know people talking about using ddt on golf courses and trade publications but we talk about this broad-based application of ddt right so spraying the course with DDT, there's one article about helicopter spraying of chemicals on a golf course, right? So it's it's sort of treating these these huge plots of land in a very efficient way, and and you can see how that the golf industry then sort of comes head to head with the environmental movement due to some of these practices, right? But that is like a, a particular thing, as I said before, right? That way of treating a golf course is a particular thing. What we've seen since then, so as golf sort of moves towards this position of corporate environmentalism, as we were talking about before, so once it moves towards corporate environmentalism in, you know, 
roughly the 1980s into the 1990s and all the way up until the present is a movement away from some of those practices. And actually, interestingly, uh, in some cases, a move back to the kind of practices of old, like things like, I suppose, spot treatment, is perhaps an example there, right? Of like, you're going to treat this particular area of the course, for instance. You could argue that organic golf, again, is an attempt to go back to the way that golf was practiced in the past. And some people who are advocates for organic go uh, golf might say that, you know, we should be more comfortable with having weeds on the course or, you know, not having these per perfectly manicured greens and so on and so forth. So, you know, a lot of the kind of stuff we, we've seen in that movement towards corporate environmentalism has, you know, one lens on it is to say, actually, this is an attempt to sort of like undo some of those technological advances that developed kind of in the 1900s and into the early post-war years. So all that to say, there is a much longer story here that adds a level of depth to the story because golf was around for so long and was something that, to use that language again, was played, for example, on glorified meadows of extreme muddiness. So it wasn't always the case that golf was this thing that was played in, in, in the way we sometimes think about it nowadays. That, that really um, connects to something that you actually said in the book, as you said about the chemical intensive pro golf reached a high point in the 70s. And then you continue to say, it's crucial to examine how broader processes associated with modernization have impacted the sport, which Brad has kind of echoed, but uh, Brian, could you go into more detail about why this argument is so important? Sure. And this will, you're, you're correct, Julie, I'll be echoing, maybe sort of offering a bit of the modernization language around what Brad just said. So if we think of like modernization as a process, like a change process, which Brad just outlined at the same time as modernization is kind of like an ideology like a set of ideas or an approach to doing things. So we think of modernization, but to drop some like descriptors of what that might mean as an approach, it means like a belief in like progress through innovation. These will remind you of some things we've already talked about, uh, a valuing of technology and technological development to help you do that, a value of standardization and uniformity and predictability. So if you think of these, like you just take modernization out of that and think of those as descriptions of both what's happening of the process of modernization, as well as like a belief that this is what should be happening. I mean, the golf is like just this banner example of modernization at work with exactly the kinds of things that Brad just talked about over time. Now, and this gets very, very interesting, maybe to take this one half step here, this might relate to some future questions, when you get to a moment where there is a realization that some of these processes have led to what have been viewed as some fairly um, concerning environmental issues that are a result of this process. And then this is where we start hitting the term, I'm gonna add ecological in front of modernization here. The idea that you can then, the problems that have been, that have been created through forms of modernization, you can get out of them with more modernization with the idea that by actually being smarter with technological developments, um, better usage of uh, through science, better understanding actually how you might use chemicals as well as the, the development of, of different kinds of chemicals, that you can move through this. And this would, and so ecological modernization 
just to step ahead a little bit is another term that aligns a lot with the term sustainability. This idea that we don't necessarily need to slow things down. We just need to be smarter and more innovative around this. So that's where the term, so there's the history of the movement that Brad just talked about. And then we get into this, this uh, sticky point. And this is where uh, I think where, where, where we are right now in a lot of ways in terms of how we deal with environmental issues. Uh, many who are writing about right now in the sociology sport community certainly would would say that how a lot of issues are dealt with currently are with an ecological modernist lens on that we can work we can figure this out if we're just like we move well with it and are uh, and are innovative. Yeah, I was going to say exactly what you said. I feel a lot of industries are modeling this eco ecological modernization. Yeah, no, this is super interesting, especially. Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about BFD here, bicycle short development, but also like the non-human aspect. And I've been doing some readings with like this new materialist angle, which I know you're both familiar with, obviously. And so I just think it's really interesting. Even earlier when you mentioned about like animals, like who might find the golf courses as like a space where they live um, and just thinking around, you know, I know you're working on this project again about, about those areas. Uh, so, you know, I feel like ecological modernization is really important and I guess I'm wondering too, you talk about modernization and then this consumer culture in golf. So what about consumer culture kind of influences this proper and aesthetic golf course? In a way, aligning with the narrative that I was just playing around with around modernization, um, I'm going to step back to the 1950s and describe a particular moment. And I think describing that moment and how that has played out to now might help answer that. So. If we go back to around the 1950s, again, this would go back before that, you begin to have a move in technologies around media and coverage of sport where you're beginning to move towards having technologies through the late 50s into the 60s where you might be able, where you can better cover a sport like golf, which is actually very difficult to cover. It's a huge space, you need a number of cameras, you need the proper technology in order to cover that well for television. Um, also, you're beginning to get the technologies to have proper color television. So what happens, the, I believe it was the 1956, I think, is when the Masters was first covered on national TV. So there's a term called Augusta National Syndrome. Augusta National is the golf course where the Masters golf tournament is played. And Augusta National Syndrome refers to the idea that when um, television media started to cover and have sort of broadcasts of that tournament. And it displayed this course, which in fact was one of the courses that had used these technologies of course management to create these pristine, idyllic, shimmering green landscapes that look great on TV. And so the story goes, or sort of the narrative goes around this is that people who are watching the master's tournament which again, you think of these combination of technology that's come together, the evolution of golf, golf course management, the evolution of media, the ability to cover these things and watch these on television, they come together. And then you have viewers and those who work on golf courses seeing these images of a golf course, Augusta National. Now, a brief and very important aside is that it's, it's known that in order for Augusta National to get in shape so it can look like that, that in fact, certainly many water inputs and certainly at the at the time like pesticides in order to get something like that were not unimportant 
to having that look and that Augusta National would have to shut down before and after that tournament in order to sort of recover from what it took to actually get a course to, to look like that. And so the idea or so the storyline goes that consumers saw that and wanted to play courses like that. And therefore what's required is that this vision that was created because of something that was produced for television, for viewers, and again, to bring this back to consumer culture so people can consume this uh, as well as the sponsors that are associated with it, it starts to go, well, maybe we on our local courses need to do something that looks a little bit like that because that's maybe what consumers want. Um, that's where this all of these forms of modernization that came together. And I also don't want to overstate Augusta National. This is a particular storyline around this. But then we get to a point now where when questions come up, like Brad spoke about, as it relates to maybe the need for golf, like organic, maybe we need to start accepting some weeds and a little different look like that. The idea is, are members of the golf industry willing to risk that if they believe that consumers want that other kind of golf course that looks that other way? And that's where you could argue that the these forces start coming together, the need to actually get people on your golf courses, the way that the media presents, these courses and uh, and sort of the history of modernization as being all key factors. I mean, with consumer culture, you're talking about that idea of golfers as consumers, right? And so the extent to which Augusta National Syndrome is actually a thing that golfers have in mind is, you know, somewhat unclear. What I think is fair to say is that it, it kind of becomes an issue of concern or consideration within the golf industry. And I do think it's fair to say that we do have that, that there's kind of a notion of a golf course as something that is kind of green and well manicured and so on becomes the kind of prevailing vision. But it's interesting when you look at some of the industry documents, I mean, there are times, uh, you know, if I recall, there's, there's a times entries into to trade publications where people are kind of bemoaning this idea of Augusta National Syndrome, right? It, it's creating an unfair standard for people who are working at a local course with probably without the resources they have to, to get the masters up and running and so on and so forth. There's maybe other times where it's said to be, yeah, this is a standard and it's good to have standards, but um, it does kind of put that, that idea that the golfer is a consumer. And if I'm not maintaining my local course up to a good standard, then the consumer will choose otherwise. Right. And so therefore it becomes almost this thing that, that, um, it sort of becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, right? Where that becomes kind of the norm for maintaining a, a golf course. And it becomes, we would argue, more difficult to do other things within the industry. So that's kind of how we get to that status quo. So consumer culture, I think, is absolutely really important to this story. And maybe a brief add-on, as sometimes happens too, is, and I love that Brad brought this up, is that the the people, like those who work on golf courses like course superintendents one of the things we really tried hard to do in the book is outline that these were individuals who had a really hard job and knew about these issues and were trying to balance like a lot of different hard incentives so it's actually not like those working in the industry who are managing greens and things like that were not trying to do their best around some of the things that around these environmental issues and things like that they also, they, they had to sort of balance this idea that they need golfers to be on the golf course. Um, they have certain tools in order to create a course where that seems to be most likely to happen. And if it doesn't happen, that might 
put them in jeopardy in terms of their like the, the views on their ability to actually maintain a golf course. So there are a lot of people in the system here who I think are also just following their incentives and doing their best with this too, including those working on like mainstream golf courses. Yeah, even organic courses, right, which we looked at as well, you know, there's sometimes we saw this view that people would say, um, you know, we, we want, we don't want people to realize it's inorganic golf course or something to that effect. So they're playing an organic golf course, but they want it to seem like any other golf course, right? That is not an organic golf course. And so we saw that as just another piece of evidence when it comes to the kind of like power of that vision of what a golf course should be like, right? That's kind of the norm of what a golf course is that affects what's going on at various courses, right? Kind of across the industry. Um, and, and even even these, even for folks who are trying to go sort of like outside of what the status quo is, what the norm is, it still has some kind of impact. It's interesting that that like golf courses would do that to on, like almost to still retain those consumers almost to say, we don't want to present it in this certain way. We want to make sure it aligns with, you know, for example, Augusta. And I feel like there's so much, you know, from the older days, even that Augusta national syndrome. And now there's also so much golf on TV all the time with these pristine courses, um, especially the pro golf kind of. Um, so I think it's just really interesting that people have more access to kind of seeing this kind of status quo course, I guess. I was going to say, it's so interesting to listen about the consumer culture and this standard of what a golf course should be and look like, because we've been talking a lot about environmentalism. And I was just thinking about, you know, the the question of class. And although they're very much related, it's because you were saying that about talking about the spectrum of um, the par spectrum and how golf actually has a lot of potential to um, work in favor of the environment. I was wondering if you could speak to if whether or not golf has the, the same potential for being accessible to those who aren't just, you know, um, upper class cis men. Yeah, I'm, I, it's a great point. I think um, that is an element that is related to the book and that we touch on, though we don't deal with as much as the environmental side, though they are certainly related. I think that golf, when we're kind of trying to problematize golf, so to speak, right? Think about all of its issues. The environment is one of many, certainly when we adopt an historical point of view and it's an exclusivity along the lines of class, gender and race, certainly um, is relevant here as well. I think when it comes to class, I mean, I suppose there is there are links, right, between uh, say class and the environment. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind for me in response to that question is how what happens in the post-war years as golf kind of gets tied up even more so with consumer culture are attempts at kind of expanding the game, making it available to more people, trying to get away maybe from that kind of country club vision of golf though certainly that still remains, right? I think it's fair to say that the golf industry wants more people playing golf because that means more paying customers, back to the point about consumer culture. Now, whether they actually achieve that and golf becomes 
more accessible? I don't know, but there's an interesting sort of environmental implication there, right? Because what that means actually is this idea of building more courses, right? The industry wants to expand in that sense to have more courses, have more consumers, and so on and so forth. Ideally, that kind of becomes a, a virtuous cycle, right? Golf becomes more popular, that inspires more people to play, and so on and so forth. And I think that when you think about the environmental implication of that, right, that just means more courses. Maybe it means more courses being built in places where it's actually pretty hard to maintain a golf course, like say in kind of like a desert landscape, for example. And so that sort of like adds to the environmental impact of golf as well. Certainly there are other things going on there, but that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind to me if we're trying to think about the kind of points of connection between say the politics of class and the politics of the environment. And maybe just to, to add to that, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that we didn't study this specifically. So we're, I will, as Brad did, I will speak to some aspects of this, but what you've raised, yes, is an incredibly important point. It's central to discussions around golf, um, but I'll probably only say so much because it wasn't the focus of what we studied. Um, I mean, to state the obvious and build on what Brad said as well, I mean, I'm living in Vancouver. We have like private courses here that are inaccessible to most, um, I think. So that's relevant to thinking about, particularly in a city where there are discussions around like real estate and availability of housing and things like that. And those discussions are ongoing here as well. So that relates to your question also. And this is something that came into the, the, re the research that we did do is that for some of those, and this might be getting to maybe a question you might have later on, that we interviewed particularly around the organic golf piece for those who were concerned not only with the, uh, I guess, managing courses that were viewed as more environmentally friendly, but managing courses that were, and in a broadly speaking, in a, I guess, a, thinking about it more, I guess, in, the, in a less critical way, sustainable. And if we take sustainability as meaning also social sustainability, there are the arguments that were made by some we spoke with were in those places that they really valued um, the idea of it being inclusive. But Brad's correct. Like, it's not like other courses don't have an incentive right now to have more people playing golf um, too. So, and also I think maybe a last piece, cause you're also touching on something too at this moment where there are discussions and certainly in Vancouver right now, they're discussing around the public golf courses and what the future should be of those about whether like what other uses those might be for if they weren't for golf? Could these be parks or places that everybody could walk? Like what is the alternative? And those are discussions, not uh, uncontentious ones about what these spaces could be used for if they're not used for, for golf or is there more of a middle ground? I suppose I should add too, I mean, in, in, thinking, uh, in thinking about my response, building more courses doesn't necessarily make golf more accessible right? That's not the point I would make. Um, golf still like requires a good amount of leisure time, for example. It's still a sport where you typically have to pay to access a course and so on and so forth, where you have to commute there and back and all kinds of elements that are relevant to accessibility. Um, but there is that idea, nonetheless, over time in the golf industry, once it gets tied up in consumer culture of 
uh, it, I suppose what I'd say is that they are aware of that issue of accessibility in golf to an extent anyways. And there's, there's an attempt to build the kind of consumer base for golf in the sense that that would benefit the industry. Thank you so much for giving us some more insight on um, environmentalism in um, golf, as well as, you know, how other aspects of social responsibility might play into that as, um, as Jess had pointed out. And so we were wanting to discuss of the anti-golf social movements. We want to dive more into that of what does this anti-golf social movement entail and um, about these global and local forms of resistance to golf course development. Like what does that entail? Yeah. So I think, you know, when it comes to resistance to golf, what we've seen is mainly local efforts at resistance. I think so that is to say, you know, resistance movements or instances of resistance or pushback against golf that arise in response to particular course development projects, right? And this happens for various reasons. It could be because, you know, the course is, is going to displace local people, or at least there's a concern that it will could be due to perceived negative environmental impacts as well, right? There are various reasons this happened. So it's predominantly local, I think. Um, but that there's also global elements at play, of course, as well. So, you know, a really prominent case is tripping up Trump, this resistance movement that emerges in Scotland near Aberdeen, where, as I mentioned before, Donald Trump was set to build a golf course. It's now been built, Trump International Golf Link Scotland. And there was a re- resistance movement that emerged um, for various reasons, some of which I mentioned before. So there was a concern among people living in that area that they would be forced off of their land. There's also an element, uh, an environmental element, because the course was to be built and ultimately was built partly on what's called a site of special scientific interest. So that's the kind of sand dune ecosystem in that area. That was a local protest movement, but there were certainly kind of global elements to it as well. I mean, there's a global element at play in that you have Donald Trump and his company, right, going to Scotland to set up a golf course. Um, There was also just some elements in terms of like the pushback, in terms of like mobilizing support um, uh, for, for the resistance to the golf course that were kind of global in nature, right? So sort of bringing in voices from other places to help push back against the golf course. There is also this thing called the global anti-golf movement that we talk about in the book. Uh, it, it, it's, it's something that has been talked a little bit about in, in kind of mainstream media as well. Um, the global anti-golf movement uh, arose in, I guess, East Asia in the 1990s. It's sort of hard to find information on precisely what it entailed and sort of where its impacts were. But we do know that there's this kind of manifesto and that it is um, a way of protesting against golf that is not just about saying that, you know, this particular golf course development shouldn't take place, but actually that golf is inherently flawed, right? And so they actually call for things like golf courses being turned into public parks, for example, right? So they point to what they see as the kind of inherent exclusivity and unsustainability of golf. 
and it's it's called the global anti-golf movement. So I suppose it's it's global in that sense, but they are trying to promote this kind of global movement against golf. Like I said, it's sort of difficult to to tell the extent to which it reaches in the actual specific cases where it's had impacts, but it is something that we talk about in the book and is sort of symbolic of the way that kind of protest against sport and in this case golf often can kind of transcend national borders. Right. And it's interesting how you, you know, discuss this exclusivity aspect of golf and maybe that being a possible reason for the pushback and political ties like Donald Trump um, may also have some effect on that, but um, more broadly, just the environmental impact on it. In a brief way, um, in chapter nine, you discuss the main potential opportunities and challenges of chemical free golf alternatives. I was wondering if you could um, discuss that a little bit more. So just maybe to clarify what organic golf refers to, at least the way that we thought about it. And there, as I'll mention, there's some different ways of approaching it. But in short, uh, like organic golf, which we might think of as chemical free golf, um, involves course maintenance without synthetic pesticides. Um, though at least and in the view of some people who are proponents of organic golf, it doesn't just mean not using synthetic pesticides. And this brings back to what we just talked about. It means pursuing a more sustainable relationship with the environment. Um, and what's really key here too, is that depending on how organic golf is pursued, it also means breaking the relationship, which is not a, not a weak one, between the golf industry and chemical industry. So that's not an insignificant thing that at least some organic golf courses might be doing. So there's an opportunity here to do something quite different and shake up the status quo. And even though, as Brad mentioned before, at least those we spoke with wanted their organic golf courses to look as pristine as possible, there is also an opportunity here to rethink what a beautiful golf course looks like. Can it be something that has weeds and spots and things like that? Because that's what it looks like. Um, now that's overstepping a little bit. Certainly for those who do organic golf, there's an acknowledgement that there might need to be more tolerance of like less pristine courses and that that needs to be okay. And that sort of spoke to something that Brad and I wrote about near the end of like what would it look like to have more of a culture change around this. Uh, challenges around this are, are many. The things we already spoke about, that organic courses, they still, to state the obvious, exist in a system where immaculate playing conditions are valued and where key figures in the industry still promote the value of, it, at least within integrated pest management, responsible use of synthetic pesticides. Um, so that makes it a little bit more difficult. Also, the as Brad alluded to earlier, it is very difficult work to do. A lot of doing organic golf course maintenance well means time intensive human effort on a golf course, like picking weeds and things like that, if that's what you want to do. Things that you wouldn't have to do with the use of other kinds of inputs. And the, other, and the final challenge, which we write about in the book, has to do with internal contradictions around what organic golf means. So on one side, you would have those who would say, you know what, um, if we could just use like one or two chemical inputs over the year, that would be great. 
versus others who might say and maybe regret not being able to do that versus others who are like, no, we actually would like to just see the culture of what it means to play on a beautiful course change a little bit and redefine what beauty looks like. So even within those who are sort of pursuing more uh, organic oriented kinds of courses, it's not like everybody agrees on what the future should hold around this too. So that's a challenge within this is it's not like it's a movement in itself that is cohesive, like a lot of movements. And on that last point, if I could just add one bit, is that, you know, there's an element here too, where actually the kind of quote unquote mainstream of the industry promotes practices that we might think of as organic practices or non-chemical practices. This was sort of part of the emergence of corporate environmentalism that we've, we've spoken about beforehand, right? So there's a system of, of, of managing, it's kind of, it goes beyond golf, but it's adopted by golf um, over time called integrated pest management, IPM. And basically the idea there is that you know, uh, chemicals can be used, but they, they should be used as sort of like a last resort, so to speak, and that you should look to adopt other types of practices, what's sometimes called cultural and biological practices and other forms of practices in the first instance. And I suppose someone from the industry might well say that is sort of an adoption of organic into what we're doing already. Like we're taking this on board. It goes back though to that divide that Brian talked about earlier, right? So that's sort of like one way of adopting those practices. Whereas, you know, other people that we encountered doing this research would say, no, actually you need to push further than that, that you shouldn't have this idea of chemicals even as like a kind of last resort, that you should push further, be more kind of transformist, so to speak, in what you do. And so I suppose you could say that that is kind of like maybe a hindrance to pursuing a, a organic golf even further in the sense that it's kind of been adopted to an extent by the kind of quote mainstream industry. It's interesting that you um, discuss organic golf as something that's, you know, it's difficult. It's not very feasible. So that makes me think that um, because you guys specifically looked at North America, how um, if we were to adopt organic golfing uh, widespread globally, how it would affect developing countries? Would it make golf even more exclusive because they would not be able to uh, create these organic golfing uh, sites? And maybe like um, like Brad said, using one or two pesticides on those golf courses like in developing countries, would that increase accessibility for those people? Like, these are just uh, things that I'm thinking about. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And it's why Jess's point was a really good one too, right? That we're talking mainly about the environment and the relationship between sport and the environment, but there are always other really important factors at play and sort of addressing one in a particular way, it it's going to have kind of implications for other things, right? So dealing with the environment is going to have implications, maybe positive, maybe negative, around things like accessibility and so on and so forth. So there's no, it, it, I mean, this is why I guess we had to write a whole book about this is yeah. because it's there's, there's a lot to say here. There's a lot to say on just the environment alone. And then if you want to broaden out even further, um, there, there's much more to say. I suppose one of the things that um, motivated us or was helpful for us in part of writing this book was a piece in, I think it was the Journal of Sport and Social Issues. 
uh, a while back. And it's actually a, a special issue on something that was called an issue, uh, critical golf studies. And it was just sort of like a call to uh, do more work of this kind, like we're talking about here, that tries, that, that sort of thinks critically about golf and its various implications, because indeed there are many and they are oftentimes connected. Maybe just to do a brief add on to that too, um, in response to your comment, Julia, is that underlying this, the idea that a lot of these things, especially like whether you have organic and all the labor on that, this all matters only if we take for granted that a course has to look a particular way in order to be playable. A lot of the work, like the intense work that those of these organic courses were doing, they were doing it still because of this idea that a course needs to look like this, which again comes back to that that history that Brad talked about, that this wasn't always like this. And then the question also that you asked around the relationship between consumer culture, this vision of what this like utopian golf course looks like, which actually changed what, again, if we view that as like a natural form of, of beauty, that's highly questionable that you have to put all these inputs into a course in order to get something that is like beautiful and associated with nature. That's a highly questionable thing. You know, so if that gets unsettled a little bit, then maybe there's an opportunity for there just to not be that much work to maintain in the ways that we tend to think we need to. Yeah, that's really interesting to think that we've always seen these golf courses very pristine, greener than green grass and extremely clean. You won't see a single weed. So, yeah, just it's interesting yeah because it's i think because of the exclusivity of golf maybe that's why it's always been that way but well sure. and i should say too and brad i won't speak for you on this but i know we allude to this in the introduction to the book is that i i mean i think those images are so powerful i mean i don't golf a lot right now but i do golf and i grew up golfing i still love the way those courses look that hasn't like it's that powerful, even though I just said what I just said, when I see a course like that, I think it looks beautiful too. Like that's a, for, for me, that at least personally, it speaks to how powerful that imagery is like that kind of an aesthetic for someone who does golf. For, for me, I would actually say that if the greens weren't so good, it would give me an excuse for why my putting is so bad. <laughs> so I actually would go the up. No, I, I agree. I agree. I agree with Brian. Yeah. And I'd probably agree too with that, uh, considering I've been golfing a bit more. And uh, if the golf course looked like my backyard with all the weeds, I probably wouldn't be golfing there. So um, there's the thing. So so yeah, we've kind of transitioned now into the kind of conclusion of the book and, you know, hopefully listeners are both, you know, we're hoping researchers and practitioners and people from sport industries. So, um, you know, I know it's been, you've, you've done a great job of breaking down a full book during the podcast, but what would you say are the main contributions in terms of both maybe theory as well as uh, practice um, for listeners, especially both from researcher and, and practitioner perspectives? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a way in which what, what we've been trying to do in the work we've done is tell a story about golf um, and what's happened in golf. But I know that what, I think what we're trying to do in, in part is use golf as a case to think about some broader processes that are going on, right? That golf, thinking about golf in particular, it's important in its own right, but it's important 
also important in that it illuminates ways that more broadly we think about, say, environmental issues, right? So that's why that point about sort of thinking of our work in relation to, say, you know, what's happened in other industries is, I think, worth doing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a story here about ecological modernization and its role in sport that applies to golf, but also applies to, say, sport more broadly as well. That many of the things that we've seen happen in golf, this idea of addressing the environment through faith in technological innovation, through sort of allowing you know industry to tackle problems to a large extent, and so on and so forth. That that's something we've seen in golf, um, but we have also seen it in other sports. And there's been kind of this growing body of literature around sport in the environment. And that is a big part, I think, of the story that's been told in that body of literature. So I think a contribution there, if we're thinking about contributions, or we hope for contributions from the book, one of them is that it goes into that conversation about what's happening in sport more broadly, and maybe even illuminate some of the things about, as I said, how we think about the environment at this moment in time, and issues like corporate environmentalism and these sorts of things. So that's... That's certainly one thing that's thinking about kind of like its place in the literature. I guess, you know, a lot of what we've done to this point is think about, you know, we've tried to document what's gone on over time as best we can and think critically about what's gone on over time. A lot of what we've done to this point is adopt that sort of historical view that takes us up to the current moment in time. And where we're shifting now is to a focus on the ways things might progress going forward. So I think to an extent, some of the kind of more practical elements are maybe still to be determined as we progress in this work. Um, I don't know, Brian, you probably have some stuff to add there too. Yeah, just a couple of things. Um, and I obviously agree with Brad on this. And if I were to think of a contribution of the book, if I were thinking like theoretically and then potentially in practice, like when I think of the approach to the book, and I know uh, Mitch, you brought up earlier about um, like more new materialist approaches that have been highlighted around, and certainly that is highly relevant for doing work around the environment. So that's not irrelevant to this book at all. And certainly Brad and I have, have written a little bit about that in relation to golf. But when I think of this book, I actually think that a contribution that was made really came from using like what I view as like a kind of a classical critical approach. One of the things that we did in this book, I think, or we tried to do, was demonstrate what we take for granted about golf. And that we also, I think, tried to demonstrate that, or at least found and then demonstrated that the way that the golf industry has handled golf um, and environmental issues, it makes complete sense to have done it that way with the incentive systems that surround the industry so it's not like i don't think brad and i found this particularly surprising in a way like this evolution from heresy to dogma it actually if you look at the incentives around it it makes complete sense that the industry would choose to take ownership over an issue um, and respond to some of the issues that they have the way that they have in the same way we refer to even those on golf courses who are trying to sort of balance these various incentives. It makes sense that they have done what they've done. So in a way, I think that is the value of, I think, more, just taking a more a critical 
approach, looking through that lens is it helps us, I think, see some of those, think, huh, should that be something we take for granted? If we kind of loosen the foundations of that. And for me, this is where I think the contribution could be practically is once you loosen the foundations, then you can start asking questions around, well, what would it look like to do this differently? And that's where we start to go near the end of the book is to highlight, well, you know, do we always need golf in all places? If it actually might be hard to maintain such that you need all of these inputs for it to happen, do we need it there? What does it look like to have a different kind of golf course with a different kind of aesthetic? Is that possible? Mm -hmm. You know, and certainly our answer would be, yeah, you know, it is, but you need to actually understand that it is and think about like what we're taking for granted before we can go there. And that was really the premise for what we're working on on right now. So in a way, there's a hope there in terms of practical implications in a way where there's hope, mm -hmm. like the generation, you need to kind of know what's happening and what might be possible before you can move there. So to me, that's a that's a contribution or an attempt to make one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, you covered it well. And I think there's a number of contributions. We just, you know, want to make sure that the, the listeners can kind of grasp those as well. Um, and so we're kind of at the end, uh, you know, one of the last questions we have, or if there's anything else you'd like to add is that, and you've kind of touched on this with, you know, talking about the culture change. So just in terms of those minor utopian visions for golf, I'm not sure if you want to say anything more about that, or if there's anything we haven't really covered today before um, we end the episode. Maybe I should just restate, I know I mentioned this earlier, that Brad and I begin the book by talking about how we golf. Um, we we played over our lives. I grew up just down the street from a, like a little nine hole golf course, which I'd like ride my bike over to. A lot of people could play. Like it wasn't like a super exclusive course that way. I have fond memories of it. I also refer in the book to being warned. And this would have been like in the, you know, 1980s, like not to lick your golf ball. Uh, Cause you didn't know necessarily what was on it because of the, like, so, and I remember that being like a joke on the golf course, but that's like when I've given talks around this, I sometimes say, so, you know, I play golf and I like golf. And I remember that as a history of, of that. So I guess the idea that we value the game and we like to play, we see a lot of like the positives that the industry would espouse, we would agree with. Um, but I guess moving theoretically, Eric Olin Wright came up with this idea of what he called uh, real utopias. So this idea of, are there current examples out in the world of what we would actually like the future to look like? Um, and if they're not there, what can we envision what a better future might look like for sport or in this case, for golf? And once you do that, then maybe either it can help you sort of create something or if there are existing examples, if you can sort of feature those and that by doing that it might be a way he uses the analogy of a uh, or the metaphor of a pond that you have a pond which is like an ecosystem if you can sort of drop in these sort of examples of different kinds of things that might change the ecosystem a little bit that was sort of his way of thinking about how uh coming up with these like real utopian examples might be useful that way and for brad nine near the end we sort of talked about this idea of contextual golf that maybe golf doesn't need to be everywhere. You can value it, but you can also understand that um, if, if maintaining golf in particular areas just isn't viable from an environmental perspective, maybe it's not needed there too. So that was, I guess, our attempt to sort of rethink what uh, is often taken for granted about golf, but with the idea that that doesn't mean we don't value it. Yeah, I would just say thanks for the great questions. I think as you can probably tell, we just really 
appreciate the opportunity to talk about this stuff. And uh, we could sometimes get going when we're talking about it, but uh, it's it's a really good set of questions and a nice, actually, there's, this, there's a, a, a kind of a whole range of ideas at play in the book as with any book, I guess. And um, this has given us a chance to talk about that, that array of ideas, the way you structured this. So thank you for that. Yeah, my thanks too. My thanks too. I, anyway, I fully agree with Brad. I think these were some really provocative questions and um, we appreciate you going through and, and pulling those out. Thank well, you. we thank you for, you know, being guests on the podcast. And also um, when we were crafting the questions, we were thinking it might be hard to really answer these in the scope of like an hour or two, an hour and a half. So really impressed if you're able to speak clearly about some of these you know, theories on light greening and dark greening. So um, thank you so much for, for joining us today. All right. So thanks again. Much appreciated. It was great to cover the book um, today. And thank you, thank you to those of you listening in and taking your time to tune in. So make sure to give us a follow on uh, Twitter coming up out soon. We're about to launch a Twitter, so keep your eyes out for that. And stay tuned for our next episode. And thanks again for listening to the Sports, Social Justice, and Development Podcast. Bye for now. Music for this podcast was provided by Lobo Loco and Broke for Free.